cultural criticism as more insightful, informative, and accessible than ever. Come to white middle-aged men who just want to get drunk and openly mock the furnishings, haircuts, and slacks of their childhood. This is drinking. This is swearing. This is getting things wrong on mic because they didn't look them up before prison record and they're not going back to edit them later. This is Peggy. It needs to be aerodynamic for landing again, but after that, all the work's done. That's fine, you know. Yeah, but the briefing wasn't. So, how are we going to make this? What's the aesthetic like? Uh, make it bullshit. All right, well, there you are then. I've done that. Is the appalling geographical mishmash supposed to allude to the nebulous location of the legendary Camelot, or is it just really fucking badly written by someone who doesn't know the UK? I wasn't paying too much attention to it because I was just fascinated by the fact that in Arthurian England, um, everyone spoke with reverb. I never thought I'd see a jizz bag in a Disney film. True. <laughs> Exit! Stage left! Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the Peggy Mount Sunday Matinee Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here, popcorn and raspberry slush in hand, not to take in the triumphs of the telly, but this time to soak up some special cinematic screenings. Yes, hello you. Thanks for swinging by for this slipshod salacious scrutiny of small screen cinema because there's nothing on the idiot's lantern, so producer Ken's been down the video shop to rent out the latest blockbuster. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and gubbins for the film we're discussing is in the show notes, plus you can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or suggest things that you would like us to cover. And before we start believing that we can change the intrinsic structure of a thing by belting it with a hammer, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? Well, I wasn't joking when I mentioned Raspberry Slush. That's just what I have. I've customised it, obviously. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, is, is the word just doing some heavy lifting there? Is vodka It involved? really is. Yes, it really is. Um, <laughs> so so I've added Merlot. Ooh. And uh, just like just like a, a GCSE French class, where you were allowed to bring in crackers and pâté, I've also got some grenadine. And let me tell you, this goes cracking with a hot dog. Yourself? Well, since we're all about archaic malfunctioning technology today, I've got a can of steam brew. A German craft IPA. I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, well, since you mention archaic technology, yes, indeed. Bows, arrows, robots, and Jean Le Mesurier. Some would say that's a hell of an afternoon at the cinema. The stuff of Arthurian legend, no less. 
That's if the producers can decide on a final title for the film. Three at the last count. So let's open the curtain and watch this juxtaposition of genre. With an opening famous logo sting performed by Blackout on the acoustic guitar. Oh yes! And myself on the big bass drum. It's time for the main feature. One, two, three. Spaceman and King Arthur, or Unidentified Flying Oddball, if you're outside the UK, is a 1979 live-action Disney film written by Don Tate, directed by Russ Mayberry. It stars Dennis Dugan as Tom Trimble, a NASA astronaut whose ship misfires and then travels faster than the speed of light, transporting him back to medieval Camelot along with his android facsimile. Finding himself trapped in the past, Tom gradually befriends King Arthur, played by Kenneth Moore, and his trusty second-in-command, Sir Gwyn, John LeMessurier, while teaming up with lowly surf Clarence, Rodney Buse, and villager Sandy, Sheila White, to overcome the evil machinations of Sir Mordred, Jim Dale, and Merlin, Ron Moody. And so the stage is set for this comedy of manners, where sparks will fly as the future meets the past head-on, and our tech-nerd heroes might just learn a bit about humanity in the process. At least I imagine that's how this was originally pitched. A question that is normally asked, did you see this back in the day, back in 1979? I did, yes. My um, my grandma took me to see this at the Robbins Cinema in Durham. Uh, Saturday afternoon, I'm guessing. Sat and watched it. Uh, I absolutely fucking loved it. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was taken by my mum, who took me to the Odeon Cinema in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and it was there uh, as a double feature. And can I knockers think of the second film that it was on with? <laughs> there is something that that tells me it was one of the movies, one of the Spider-Man movies that right. Nicholas Hammond, yeah, yeah, was in because they were. I think there were two movies made of that. Uh, I think they were essentially TV movies, but they decided to put them on the cinema. But I'm sure it yeah. was one of those. Yeah, I'm sure it was one of those. But, um, yeah, and I came out of there and I loved it. Yeah. Right, quick question for you, dear listener. If you know where we can find old cinema listings from days gone by, like, you know, late 70s, early 80s, preferably from the proprietors of the cinemas themselves rather than scouring through scans of old newspapers... Please, please, please point us in the direction of them because I've tried to do this for Robin Cinema before and I can't find any online archives of what was shown when because um, obviously it was quite a big, you know, some of the biggest moments of my life happened in that building. That would be nice. So if you can, I know the kind of listeners we've got, they're geniuses. Please help us out. Thank you so much. Anyway, on, on with this. On with this. We're into a, uh, a beautiful scene. Uh, well, the first scene that really struck me on, on this rewatch um, was being reintroduced to two gentlemen that I recognise from my watching. Um, there's a gentleman who appears in the first episode of Blake Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met the, the, the American gentleman with the grey hair. Right. Uh, and the other American gentleman who's in Faulty Towers. Ah, yes, the magnificent Bruce Boer. 
Yes. It was this very same year that he was ordering a Waldorf salad in Faulty Towers. The right. following year, he would go on to order the evacuation of Echo Base and the Empire Strikes Back. Get in! Yeah, it's all happening. Yeah. It's a pity they didn't really do more with him. He's in it for five minutes at the start, isn't it? I'll cash that check. Thanks. Bye. That was that. Yeah, they're, they're highlighted in Spotlight magazine as gruff executive American type. Um, yeah. they, they serve that purpose, though. That's fine. That's fine. See, although this was released in 1979, this is Disney playing with Kubrick's 2001 rather than Star Wars. Um, obviously... The studio used the black hole to scratch that other particular itch. At this point, it's all about ships from Earth travelling into the cosmos to sort of bend time and space and whatnot. So there's a very there's a very 2001 feel to the point where I expected Leonard Rossiter to turn up, but he didn't. Bless him. There is that sort of feel to it. There's a very Playmobil feel um, to the uh, to the ship to the to the, the to the design of Stardust. Yes. This space shuttle that's going through there. Yeah. yeah. Convinced that was designed by a Playmobil. How simplistic do you want to get it, mind? <laughs> There's not a shred of aerodynamism in that. Not a shred. Well, bear in mind, this sort of doesn't need to be because it's they're going to launch this inside a rocket. It only has to fly once it's in space. So it doesn't really need to be aerodynamic. It needs to be aerodynamic for landing again, but after that, all the work's done. That's fine, you know. Yeah, but the briefing wasn't, so how are we going to make this? What's the aesthetic like? Uh, make it bullshit. All right, well, there you are then. I've done that. Keep in mind, this movie is based on Mark Twain's novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which he wrote in 1889. Yeah. So that story didn't originally involve space travel. It just used unexplained time travel instead, knock on the head sort of thing. To be fair... This version of the story doesn't exactly use space travel in any meaningful sense. It's just a tool to lever in the time travel. So it sort of doesn't matter what the ship looks like, as long as he lands in an astronaut's outfit and, you know, sort of scares off a couple of the locals. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the space travel's like very much a second tier. It's just about getting him into... Um, are we meant, we'll get to it, but I think we're meant to believe it's Cornwall, but yeah. Yeah. And it also gets them off the hook with using any special effects whatsoever. Yes. So yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I love, I love how it is. It is very simplistic uh, in its approach to a lot of um, to a lot of elements of this. For example, uh, our our protagonist Trimble, good lord, yep, is ordered Tommy, Tommy Trimble. Yes, Tommy Trimble <laughs> is ordered. And I quote, build me a fully functioning automaton. I love this. Yep, Dr Zimmerman on the phone. He's unveiled Project Stardust. As, as we've discussed, this prototype space shuttle which travels faster than light using an ion engine. They've crammed a lot. The first three minutes is just this massive exposition dump. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Their plan is to send it out, I think, to Alpha Centauri, he says, with two crew members. And then when the senator hears this, I'm not sending good American men out into space. And he's like, well, fine. Tommy, build me a robot. And he starts by drawing a circle. Then he just lays out a rubber hand on the table. And then he's built a robot. He's built a robot. No bother. I'll build you a robot. Let, let us do it while I put a pan of chips on. It, yep. it, it, it just seems to have happened as simply as that. And well, it's not just a robot. I mean... This well, this is, is the thing. This, this is a this is a, a character building montage sequence, yep. during which our hero Tommy Trimble he shows the audience how humble and unassuming he is by single handedly creating 
an exact replica of himself. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely that. This is the best thing I can think of. Oh, look, it's another me. <laughs> Mint. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I did like the idea of having one actor playing two leading roles. That's a nice touch. It telegraphs that there's going to be some jokes coming from mistaken identity further down the line. Oh, I like this. Ab- well, absolutely. It not. didn't really happen, but I like it as an idea. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, no, it's all right. And it's cheap to cast as well. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, this. So it's fine, fine. Uh, speaking of cast, my God, what a cast this film has got. Yeah. Well, it's... Once he's there in Camelot, all of that is shot in Pinewood. So I've, I've got a funny feeling the stuff at the start would have been shot over in Los Angeles, but once he's like, you know, on the ground, when there's whenever there's green in the scene, that shot of Pinewood, hence a largely British cast. Uh, to be a lot of this was shot at Annick Castle in Northumberland. Yes, it was indeed. You know you're onto a winner with the likes of Jim Dale, mm-hmm. Jean Le Majurier, numerous others, you've mentioned them already. More specifically... When you've got Pat Roach, who is starring as Oaf, you're on a winner here, mind. That's true. This is, we- this is, oh, you can hear the clang of Oscars in a carrier bag. <laughs> we have skipped over the pivotal part in the first uh, sort of 10 minutes of the film of how he actually gets into the past. Where Tommy Trimble, he's got his robot version of himself, Hermes, in mm. the robot, and the robot, mm. uh, so in the rocket. And the robot's like, I'm not really sure I want to go into space because I think I'm probably going to die in space. And it's, it's nice that he's programmed it with that level of um, self-realisation already. Yeah. And then the rocket accidentally takes off because the launch pad is struck by lightning during a storm because that's how that's space right. travel works, isn't it? That's you right. just You just line up the rocket and turn on the electric. And then we get some LCD readouts, some shots of a model spinning through the slowest light speed travel you have ever seen, and then it's Absolutely. done. The time travel has happened. Yep. Mint. That's that. That's that. <laughs> Tom re-enters the Earth's atmosphere to land in the English countryside, we are told, um, right next to a lone villager who's surprisingly articulate and well-informed considering it's the Middle Ages. Well, she can talk to a goose. Well, <laughs> and then obviously being a an inherent traveller, Tommy asks her wh- wh- where on earth he is. Where am I? Botany on Trent, Langdale Walk, Bennington Green, Devonshire Cream, Cornwall, England. The year of our Lord, 508. This is a joke, yes? Uh, I'm assuming. Right. Is the appalling geographical mishmash supposed to allude to the nebulous location of the legendary Camelot, or is it just really fucking badly written by someone who doesn't know the UK? I wasn't paying too much attention to it because I was just fascinated by the fact that in Arthurian England, um, everyone spoke with reverb. Not to mention a home county's accent, but yes. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, as we, as you say, we're, we're in the bright sunshine. We're in a lovely, leafy, leafy glades. Everything's quite serene and pleasant. Mm-hmm. And then our antagonist turns up. Can I just say, Jim Dale is a decent buddy. He's all right, isn't he? He's all right. Rocking up, yeah. Ro- rocking up with an acid perm and lessons in overacting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know... Um, bit of a caricature for him because he's usually the the well-meaning hero of the piece, or at least you know. Yes, he's, yes, he's definitely enjoying himself here. And fair play. Yeah, to him. yeah. Um, Rod- Rodney Bewes, of course, is always the underdog. This is a he, he rocks up with his surf 
McLaren's in tow, and in all honesty, you have not lived until you've watched Rodney Bewes butchering a West Country accent in a pair of lemon yellow tights. Ever. It's, it should be the highlight of, so, of one's viewing. Um, yeah, he plays a similar part in a Doctor Who story from the Peter Davison era. Right. Um, yeah. Um, Does he still have the yellow tights on? Probably under his costume. I wouldn't ah, okay. be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't the costume, just a pair yeah. of yellow tights. Yeah. <laughs> if we're on the subject of wardrobe, Ron Moody as Merlin is impressive. He is full pantomime in this. I don't think he yeah, knows yes. he's in a comedy. It's like he's he's playing it sort of ridiculously and yet far too seriously. <laughs> and yeah, then you got Kenneth Moore as the king, not quite knowing how he should be acting King Arthur. So he's doing no. it very understated. There's nothing regal about his performance at all. Fine. Um, John LeMessurier basically plays John LeMessurier. That's fine. You know, if, if that's who you book, that's what you want to get. That's You know, I ain't got a problem with that. Well, he does. And he's always, you know, um, impeccable. Yeah. But his hair is a beautiful blow wave that I was not aware was on any catalogue in any hairdresser in uh, in Camelot. But there you go. <laughs> it's not in the catalogue, because it's John LeMessurier. He turns up, he gets a bespoke cut all to himself. No one else can have that hair. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And quite right, too. Quite right, too. Um, I nearly went through me chair when Trimble actually mentions the word slacks. <laughs> So as far as I was concerned, the standard of writing has gone through the roof here. So straight away, we're up to nine pegs. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> I expect more to be flicked off the line as we go on, but that's fine. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we get this full banquet scene, which is designed to show off the budget uh, assigned to sets and wardrobe. I think it's more likely that these have been exhumed from storage, having been used on dozens of other films about 20 years earlier. There's a there's a thing here that like once we're in Camelot and we see the interior of the castle, this is the film they really wanted to make. They weren't interested in the space time travel shit. Yeah. By the time the Trimble explains his story to King Arthur, yeah, and his in his courtiers, mm-hmm. they're asleep. And I know I like how they feel. That, that, that's know- a decent. It's a decent gag. I like it. It's, you know, I don't mind that. Well, it is, but I know how they feel, because the pace in here, mind, it is like wading through treacle wearing lead rocker-bottom sandals. I'll tell you now. Good Lord! So, yeah, after doing all this, after breaking the first law of time travel by explaining in painstaking detail precisely where he's from and why he's there... Which, um, may I point out, he constantly breaks the first rule of time travel all the way through oh, the yes. film. Oh, yes. Of course Disney, he does. Disney aren't interested in consequence. Again, no, precisely this. Yeah, it's about as interesting time travel as it is about space flight. Do not give a shit. We want suits of armour because we've already got them in the cupboard. Uh, yeah. So Tommy gets sent to the dungeon overnight prior to him being burned at the stake the next day. Not that this is convincing from the performances that have led up to it, just that it's the kind of thing that you'd expect to happen, therefore it has to happen in the script. Yep. I do think yep. a big part of it, it's certainly so far, is that the cast are just interpreting their roles any way they see fit. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's actually much direction going on to bring everything together. I don't know what Russ Maybury was doing on the set other than saying start and stop. <laughs> was he on the set? Was he on well, the set? Well, we'll get to that later, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I never thought I'd see a jizz bag in a Disney film. True. <laughs> Playtime. Okay, fair enough. 
Uh-huh. So that was an eye-opener or a visor-opener. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it sort of feels like... Was this was this common in Disney flicks at the time? Um, it feels odd for what was like literally a kid's adventure film. To have a run and joke. This, this is like clearly... This first gets mentioned back on the ship when the robot has brought some porn onto the spaceship. Why? He's a robot. Um, his entire education has just been Tommy there showing him slides going, this is a tree, this is a hat. You, do you know enough to go into space yet? Yes. And he's just <laughs> yes. like, I have brought porn. Right, okay, what? <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, The Spaceman and King Arthur is essentially a carry-on film with the smut dialed down. Absolutely. But then a joke like this lands it, and you're like, did anyone see this before it went out to cinemas? This, <laughs> this feels like it skipped the editing process somehow. No Very one odd. cares. No one cared. You, you, we get to uh, we get to the burning scenes that you mentioned earlier. You know, you look at this; it's very cartoon aesthetic. Yeah, this is this is absolutely how Disney would see this period of history: completely sanitized. Mm-hmm. Just the costuming and, and all that. There's not a bit of clots on any of them. They're all beautifully turned out. Oh yeah, because um, yeah. they don't want to yeah. have to pay to get all the costumes cleaned after filming. But let's not forget, it's a kids' film in which our hero mm. is going to get burned at the stake and does not get saved at the last minute. <laughs> yeah. There's a thing engineered in there where he's like, ah, it turns out my suit is fireproof. That means I'll just be able to go through with it. And you're like, you're resting a lot on that, aren't you, really? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. How did he pull the sword out? Well, this is the thing, right? We get to this moment in the castle where um, obviously he survived the burning at the stake. And then... Uh, Mordred is like, he sends off his surf to fetch his sword. Because obviously, he's a knight. He doesn't carry his sword around with him. It's locked in the cupboard when he's not using it. That makes absolute sense. Ready at a moment's notice for battle. Mm, mm. Um, We have this moment where there's a rock in the castle on a plinth with like a a screen around it. This is the famed Excalibur. You know, it's sort of there on display. It's Arthur's, like, prize. He's earned that. They've managed to pull the whole thing indoors, fine. And yeah, we get this moment where Tommy Trimble proves his character's purity by removing this enchanted blade from the rock in which it is embedded. Now, this is a pivotal scene in any retelling of the tale, right? It's Thor's hammer. It's Neo stopping bullets in midair. It's Luke Skywalker turning off the targeting computer. This is where you find out exactly what this character is. This is his potential. This is the core of his being. So, obviously, it's executed here with precisely no build-up fanfare or meaning. He At might all? as well have taken that sword off a shelf. Yes. Absolutely. No drama, no tension, nothing. Yeah, nothing. just pulls it out. It's not even done like that as a joke. It's not even like he doesn't realise what it is. Oh, I just have this sword. No, it's just, that, that's it. There's not enough put into it. Well done, Disney. Well done. Yep. yep. Bless them. Had they made the sword in the stone by this point? I mean, someone in there knows about it, right? Uh, they had made that by then. I'm sure they had, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good God. Yeah. We'll put it down to Russ Mabry then. Well, he wasn't there, so you can't. But, um... <laughs> so after he's got the sword out, mm. and Clarence goes and he gets uh, Mordred's sword, this is the part of the film which had the biggest impact on me as a six-year-old. Oh, it's, well. it's a very It's a very throwaway moment. In the, mm-hmm. Well, I see now it's a throwaway moment. Tommy Trimble, he takes Sir Mordred's sword, which Clarence has been sent to retrieve, and he makes it highly magnetic by hitting it with a hammer. Now, ah, yes. Because he's been shown to be a scientist, 
And because he says the words, I'm going to try to magnetize the sword. Magnetize it? Yes, a solid blood of the handle should rearrange the molecular structure of the steel. Hurry up, come on! I assumed that this would be true. He said yes. it. And then he makes it happen, particularly because it just works first time. He just belted with a hammer, and this blade of steel becomes a four-foot magnet. Now, I can't tell you how many months I spent after this smacking random bits of metal with a hammer convinced I was about to create magnets, but I lost a lot I lost a lot of time. I was just about <laughs> to ask if yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every time I was round at my grandparents' house, my granddad had like a basically an old outhouse that he uses like a tool shed and yeah I'd be there Sunday afternoon get the hammer out have you got a bit of metal what for now I'm going to make a magnet bang 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 didn't work not once did it work does it listener does this work can you just hit things and turn them into magnets with a hammer Is it... please tell us there's got to be some science to it. <laughs> there has to be, I've lost the episode of Tomorrow's World where Judith Han is trying it um, I had she was that trying it with tip. Howard Stableford's head though Ah, good point. That's probably why it didn't work then. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but don't believe everything you see on the screen is is a valuable lesson to learn. I yep. learned that having seen a clip. They discovered a clip of a Patrick Troughton episode of Doctor Who. I think it was Fury from the Deep, I think. Right. And the TARDIS landed on water. I put my Dennis Fisher cardboard TARDIS in the bath. <gasps> and it completely destroyed it. Because as far as I was concerned, it happened on the telly. It was fine. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you what, listener, there's a lot coming out today. I wasn't ready for this. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, this sword fight... Yeah. With the magnetic sword. Using the newly magnetised sword, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did this ramp up the tension for you? Because he's got a magnetic sword. Did you think, right, he's going to belt his arse all over. This is going to be a good... What, What do you reckon? I've got to say that watching it now, I did enjoy it. Um, there's just obviously Mordred's waving his sword around, and it's just attracting more and more of the castle's fixtures and fittings, weighing them yeah. down with every single attack. I think it works quite well, purely because it's just the same joke repeating. With Mordred being too stupid to work out what's going on, that's that's the only reason this works. Yeah. Um, although I've got to say, when it culminates, Mordred falls into the moat wearing a suit of armour. Now, why doesn't the film address that its lead antagonist is going to drown here? Yes, yes. I don't, I don't care how sort of super fit he is. He's in a moat wearing armour. That's it, he's dead. But it doesn't happen, apparently. No, no. Well, it's, it's Jim Dale. <laughs> he can go down the hospital steps on a stretcher. Were you not a fan of so? Yeah, I just thought it was too long. All right, we get it. It's magnetised. He's just yep. going to attract everything, and there's the, yep. it's, it's not going to be as effective. It went on too long, man. Right. Okay. You remember what the te- teachers used to say to stop the class laughing? All right, joke's over. Joke's yep. over. Yeah. Is that, on, is that? Again, for me, that's why it gets funnier, because it goes on for too long. <laughs> Very much in the Stuart Lee school of comedy here. <laughs> well, right. Fair, fair. Um, yeah. So on to the joust again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's challenging him to a joust because he's worked out he can't kill him with a sword and he can't burn him to death. So clearly mm-hmm. riding at him on a horse with a big long stick, that's going to work, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Maybe try burning him without the suit, mate. No, 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 no. He's proved himself fireproof. Right, okay. I mean, this is all very convenient and it's all very cosy. Yeah. But there's there's very little in the way of tension, mind. Yep. I'm not worried. Oh, no, I'm- yeah, no, that's absolutely not what the film's trying to do. It's basically another retooling of the stake burning and then the duel. 
At this point, we're only halfway through the film, and it's just an excuse for set pieces with little to no plot escalation. What can we do next? A joust. Uh Right. Now they're doing a joust. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And, of course, things rumble on and rumble on, and we learn of Jim Dale's character's true intentions at last. Um, Trimble, meanwhile, is repairing Hermes uh-huh. uh, in the castle. But how? Because there's not a meg of electricity anywhere. How is he's he doing a... this? Well, exactly the same way as he built the android to start with. He's basically jabbing circuit boards with a screwdriver. That is right. science. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> you know, considering he's like an android with a perfect grasp on physics and mathematics, enough to be a space pilot, Hermes is a bit shit at jousting, isn't he? Yes, just a, just a tad. Considering it's supposed to be all, just, all singing and dancing, yeah, yeah. Just aim the stick at the guy's head, rather than just riding past him and waiting to get hit. Yeah, fine, fine. I mean, to skip forward, uh, you know, we'll come straight back again. But to skip forward, it turns out that uh, Tommy Trimble has actually got a working laser pistol, which can destroy rocks from like eighty feet away. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't this have been handy during the joust? Yes. Yes, Jude, at any point, just he's to already, completely... He's already tried to burn and stab him by this point. It's clear he's like a potential murderer. You're allowed yeah. to kill him, mate. It's fine. I know it's a Disney film. I know there's, like, I was going to say plotting. There isn't any plotting. There isn't any person. I know there's, like, hurdles to get over before we get to the end. But, yeah, kill the bad guy. Do it now, quickly. Yes, and then we can all just have a nice picnic by the river. Uh-huh. Um, and I would do it wearing Merlin's cape, because I do want that cape that uh, Ron Moody's wearing. I've got to have that. Um, but anyway, does that, does that mean I get Rodney Buse's tights? If it, it, go for it, go for it. They may get <laughs> wet is, while we're sitting by the riverbank, but fine. There, there is a bit earlier in the film where Tommy Trimble's in the dungeon, and uh, Sandy, the girl one, she comes in wearing Rodney Buse's outfit with the brown smock and the yellow tights, which means that at that point in the film, Rodney Buse is running around in the nude. Yep, yep. It doesn't have a caravan. It's just hanging about on set. <laughs> Yep. Next to the burger van. Yep. I wish that Harry would finish this scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. Anyway, yeah, so um, he's repairing Hermes, um, thankfully, thanks to the advice of uh, their scientific advisor on this film, who was Enid Blyton. Um, <laughs> I remember the, the, the Lunar Rover is unveiled. I wanted uh. this. I wanted this. Okay. It is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. As yes, is the is. fact that it's got like a jet-powered ejector seat hover chair. It's fucking magnificent. There's a secret tunnel. Uh-huh. There is there is a secret tunnel hidden by a soldier holding a twig. That's fine. <laughs> it's it's a castle. I expect secret tunnels. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's not very well concealed. Is what is what I'm saying. And it, you know, you could walk past that during the daylight. That's why he's paid to hold the twig <laughs> till they can build something like better. Yeah, and yes, you mentioned the flying chair. Absolutely. And there it is. Tis revealed. Now, this is a definite memory from back right. in the day, because I actually remember seeing this clip on screen test before right. I saw it at the pictures. Cool. Yeah, it's part of a like a very long, again, a very drawn-out combat sequence uh, during which a lot of people fall off battlements while a lot of other people just stand and watch them. There's no direction for like any of the background artists. They're just like, you're either trained to fight, therefore you can fight, otherwise... Just start, do do something. Look busy. No, at, at one point, around one hour and sixteen minutes into it, you can see the wires holding the chair up. They've forgotten yes. to paint them out. Now, 
I am going to put an incriminating moment, uh, screenshot of that moment in the show notes, peggymanpod.com. Have a look at that. I'll forgive them this one slip-up that I noticed, because the rest of it, it's clunky, but it's not too bad. But this is like, I know you've got the hover chair with the smoke coming out the bottom, but the wires are coming out the top. The whole thing's a shambles when you think about it. There's utter hell on with the soldiers, uh-huh. and yet Trimble sat there in a flying chair just watching. Yes. And if I if I was one of the soldiers, you know, on the on the other on his side, I'd be like, "Excuse me, would you would you like to come and help, please?" <laughs> Instead of just sitting up there on your own. Well, surely only the enemy soldiers are like, "We've got range weapons. Why don't we just shoot at him? He clearly can't move very fast. He's not that agile." <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so at this uh. point, where he's like unveiled the uh, the lunar rover and his little hover chair. Mm. Is it clear yet what Tommy Trimble is trying to do in the longer term? No. Well... Because Mordred's been grassed up, and uh-huh. he's now, like, off, and he's planning this full-on attack on the castle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, Tommy's going to help out. That's his role in the film. After that, what, though? Because even if he manages to get Stardust off the ground again, how will he make it out of the Earth's atmosphere to engage light speed? The shuttle clearly can't do that on its own, since it was originally launched as inside a larger rocket anyway. Yeah, and he hasn't developed any tech that makes it superior to how nope. it was before it arrived at... Yeah. Mm, nope. Yeah. And given that Tommy does not understand the technicalities of how he travelled back in time to begin with, how can he possibly hope to reverse the process? You're... you're you, yeah, we're in a similar fix here. Tommy's in a similar fix here, as the scriptwriters were, because following on from our little battle scene with the flying chair, uh, mm. we're back to a scene with the magnets... Yeah, let's throw another magnet scene in there. We don't know what to put in. Yeah, let's get this magnetic sword out again. Yeah, yeah, we got, like, more polarising hijinks as Hermes turns on the ship's electromagnets, um, which attract all of the enemy foot soldiers to great comic effect, but none of them stick to the magnets somehow. Right. They basically go spanging into the ship, then they fall off. It can attract them from 30 feet away, but they don't stick to the magnet. They just conveniently lie on the floor for the next wave of soldiers to stick to. Okay, mm. right, okay. I mean, you know, if he just... Maybe Tommy Trimble should have just hit them all with a hammer turned them all the magnets to start with. <laughs> right, right. They would have stuck to each other, can't go anywhere, film is over, bang, done. No, yep. I didn't do that. Yeah, the but hammer that's... and King Arthur. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is this is, happens after, of course, this um, this bit where Hermes is in the, uh, in the pilot's seat and he repels off these waves of invaders, first off, by firing these big boosters. Yeah. And all, all, all of the enemy are blown back by the force and the heat of it. But again, somehow the film doesn't show the, the skin being boiled off their faces by this process. <laughs> um, <laughs> I found unusual. But can't, I can't understand. Something, I mean, I, I said I was going to go back to this. Something I found unusual as well, I couldn't understand as a kid, because I was a kid during the mass merchandising era of Star Wars. Yeah. When I bounced out of the cinema, having watched this film, I mm-hmm. expected to find in the local toy shop some Spaceman and King Arthur merch nothing yep absolutely nothing which I mean you and I are both we like our merch and yeah we um, yeah I had to which is not a bad thing I suppose but I had to improvise with a Lego when I got home Um, fortunately I did have space Lego and Mm -hmm. uh, had great joy in making the uh, lunar lunar module um, the little lunar what do you call it tank thing what did yep. I call it before yeah that was it the lunar lander or lunar that's explorer it. or something that's it and 
and um, the flying chair. I made all of that out of Lego when I got home that afternoon. Great, I had great fun doing it. So I'm actually pleased they didn't bring the merch out, but yeah. Now, again, to be fair, the merch takes a long time to prepare. You've got to start that early in pre-production unless you're going to delay your own sort of film coming out. True. And again, at this point, it was a year or two years after Star Wars had landed, but this wasn't intended to sort of play that same game. That's what they did with the black hole. That's where you did get all the action figures. True I know enough. that because I had a fuckload of the action figures. Um, so did I. But yeah, you know, they weren't playing that game quite then. It still feels unusual for Disney, though, to bring out a space film in 1979 and, yeah, you're right, not have toys. Especially since a lot of it would have just been like Knights in Armour, the easiest fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, back to the film. It all goes swimmingly well, doesn't it? It does, it does. And, well, I know I, I shouldn't really... Be, I don't want to piss on his parade, but he gets his name added to the round table. There's yeah. somebody scratching Tommy Trimble's name into the round table. There and is. His, his name is, is literally carved into the table. Who's been given the push? Who has innocently <laughs> lost their hallowed place? And by what measures was this decided? I'm furious. Well, I tell you what, he stood there by the table, watching this work being completed, and he's walking around reading the other names, and he's like, oh, Sir Lancelot. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's right, Lancelot, Knight of the Round Table. Odd that, isn't it? We made an entire fucking Arthurian adventure, and we haven't included, we haven't even mentioned Lancelot's name until yeah. now. He yeah. might have been quite handy. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, where the hell were they? On a club trip. I think they've taken the table apart, made all of the segments slightly smaller, put it back together, put an extra one in. That's Tommy Trimbles. I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. <laughs> so Tommy gets to say goodbye to Simpleton Sandy. She gives him a note to pass on to Hermes. Like a villager in the Middle Ages can write. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then we're, we're going to find out if Tommy's going to A, make it into space without dying during a botched launch, Correct. or then B... Just die in space, orbiting the planet in the year 508, because he has no idea how his own ship actually works. Yep. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, I did read up on this, and Sandy had written that note in our own shit. So that added a little bit to the... Um, <laughs> added to the aesthetic uh, So it was just like a smear on the page. And Hermes, the robot, was able to basically like, work out from the smell what it meant, as if he was like translating it from a dog. <laughs> It was a smear of a heart that she'd done, but, yeah. Uh. I'm not saying that Sandy had actually annoyed me in every single scene she'd been in for the entire film. That's just a coincidence. I thought it was Sherry Hewson when she first came on the screen. Then I no, she, no Sherry Hewson can act. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I, I genuinely thought we were going to go back for Sandy. Um, well, that's sort of where it ends. It's like this nice open-ended... Mm. You know, Tommy sort of works out, ah, the uh, the girl one to, is it like into me. I don't know how he's even got enough fuel to make it back into space, let alone make the trip back to Earth and then back out of space again. Um, this is it. There are these notes, because by that point when they turn around, he's already travelled through time a bit. Yeah. And I'm thinking, watching this now, that central relationship, which is completely fucking unexplored by the film, but the central relationship between Tommy and Sandy... There are notes of the girl in the fireplace and the princesses from Bill and Ted, which obviously, you know, this massively predates both of those. And again, the film does absolutely nothing with this concept. Too busy just cramming together a series of low-tech set pieces instead of 
building any character whatsoever. God mm-hmm. bless them. Yeah. So so that's that, yeah. Um, uh-huh. How many pegs are you going to place upon a medieval washing line over a fire where there's a suckling pig being roasted? <laughs> well, King Arthur and the Spaceman does have a lot of vintage charm, but no real impact. Uh, I think the comic interplay between the two versions of Dennis Dugan is totally wasted, and this feels like an American misunderstanding British farce. Uh, the mechanical pacing and the lack of direction make this less of a hero's journey, more of a space oddity. Five out of nine. What about yourself? That's generous. Three pegs, I'm afraid. Three. <laughs> this. This is He's not so happy. ill-timed. This was released in July 1979, two years after Star Wars. But it, I suspect this was already in production before Star Wars came out. I don't get the impression this was rushed somehow. I think it was just slowly done and badly oh, done. Oh, no, no. The low production values on this film at this time does not warrant a summer release. <laughs> um, the the takings at the box office would reflect a different story. As I mentioned earlier, I saw this as a double feature and I cannot remember what it was playing with, which actually now makes sense, as I think the takings at the box office would reflect a different story had it have been released independently. Right. In short, Blake 7 production meets Lady Bird book storytelling, with some of the longest scenes known to cinema where very little actually occurs. Three pegs. Ooh. Dear, oh dear. But the question, Mm. the question that everybody's asking, Mm. written in their own shit on a scrap of paper, is how many steps would it take you to yodel to the top of the mountain? As it happens, I'm very fortunate because I could do this in one. Ooh. Spaceman and King Arthur stars none other than Ron Moody, who was also in 1968's Oliver, alongside Peggy Mount. They still haven't printed my problem. Lovely, lovely. Not bad, not bad. And yourself? I can match you step for step. One. Unidentified Flying Oddball stars none other than Sheila White, who was also in 1968's Oliver, as well as Peggy Mount. I sent Katie up to lie down. She was wearing me out. Indeed, indeed. Brilliant. We got there in the end. We most certainly did. Right. That was that. While I stand up from my folding seat to allow someone to go to the shithouse during the credits, Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thanks once again for dropping in. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyMountPod on Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes, a link to some of the great behind-the-scenes footage from the location shooting at Anik Castle, and to browse all of our other episodes. And if you fancy a review of this film which isn't quite so fixated on taking the piss out of people's haircuts, there are some slightly more sensible words on this at worldofblackout.co.uk. It's as simple as that. It really is. Right, we're going to put the tape in the box like clever lads and finish off the last of the pig and mix. So, until next time, keep mountain! 
to Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from Michael Media, which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments and television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Thank you.